this week in sparkling water. I'm your host. My name is Joachim Eriksson, and I'm the host of... This week, I'm the host. Yep. Thank you to everyone for reaching out after listening to last week's episode. Very pleasant. Oh, the AC just turned off. What's better than... What's better than the audio quality right now? You hear that? That's perfect. Perfect audio right there. Yeah, last episode, um, I... We I talked to Doug and... I used to record the episodes and release them like weeks later. And now it's so pleasant to record this one and be talking about the previous one because I would publish episodes and then people would comment and then I would hear the comments and talk about it the next time I was recording and I would be talking on an episode that's five episodes after the one I'm commenting on now it's much more pleasant to be doing this in real time just very nice to hear from people who used to work with me and Doug and who have moved on and who listened to the pod. And it's this little social wormhole to fight off the loneliness crisis to have people reach out. Very nice. <clears throat> it's, um, I don't do a lot of guests. I did Doug and when, when it was done, I felt so bad about it. I felt like it was the worst fucking episode I've ever recorded. And I always feel like that after having a guest. Because I'm like not really present for it somehow. And, but it was also a kind of meandering thing. And me and Doug recorded for two and a half hours. And then what I did was I edited out all the fucking things that, yeah. The parts that weren't that interesting. I used to do that for the la for the first fifty episodes of the pod. I would I'd record for an hour and then I'd sit for three hours and edit out all the mouth noises. And then since episode fifty one, I just changed my philosophy and now I just I just let it rip. And in a way, oftentimes I think it's just better because it's just an actual like it's it's one human mind clicking into another human mind. And I think that the editing can actually be an obstacle in between there. Okay, I have to talk about something else. I, it, this is maybe boring to talk about, but I have to talk about video games. Um, I don't know where to start. So I, because of AA, and because in AA in Seattle, I would meet people... I would see people in meetings who had like a good amount of sobriety and who had a good life and a family and like they were where they were maybe 10 years older than me and they were where I want to be 10 years from now. And one thing that I saw often in those people that is that they would they played video games sometimes. And they it was a little bit surprising because they were a little bit older than the people you associate with video game players. God, I need a lens wipe. Hold on. Like there is a sort of ever-changing image of what a, a video game player is. And in the 90s, it was really sort of a true nerd. 
And then later it got to be someone that was much more like a frat boy. Like in the early 2000s, I think the image of a video game player was much more like a frat boy who had like a TV console video game kind of setup. And then now it's like a much more multifaceted thing where people of all different ages and genders can, can partake. And I've mentioned this before, and it's just a thing where like, it just seems like maybe it can be a healthy form of, of escapism <clears throat> that doesn't fuck up your body the way drugs and alcohol do, but you can still get a break from your world. But the thing about it is that there's some, we live these lives and we live in different worlds, like maybe most straightforwardly, you can think about how like you have a work world for some reason i hate myself right now talking about this but we're just going to power through you you can be at work and if you really care about work and the problems and the mission that you're dealing with at work it's easy to become this person where you come home after work and you barely even see your home you're like a ghost at home because there's a stickiness to a world to really caring about a world and if you really care about your work world it's it can your other worlds your home world or your family world or whatever your other world is can really sort of fade into the background <clears throat> And for a lot of people, it's probably the other way around where you have like friends and a life and stuff you do that you really care about. And then you go to work and the whole time at work, you're kind of just like uncomfortable and you're not committed to it. And you're probably pretty shitty at your job. And I spent a good decade of my life like that. Like me in Shanghai, I didn't never give a shit about my job. And I, and it is a sort of, there's some friction there where you're rubbing against the grain of how reality wants you to be because like there's a rebellious nature to that to be shitty at your job and to love your friends and to have crazy adventures with your friends all all the time and you're always broke and things you ain't getting no promotions when you don't give a shit about your job you know <clears throat> um but then there's video games and like video games can also be like a world and Video games are so immersive now. And when you've immersed into that world, you stop playing the video games and you can stand in your house and you're like standing in your living room and you're like, wow, I just played video games for four hours. And you look at the world and the world has no color because you don't give a shit about the world. You don't give a shit about reality because the world you care about is in that computer. And man, that is so interesting to me. The stickiness of it is interesting to me because... Because we just don't, it does not come natural to the human mind to care about multiple worlds at the same time. Like, whatever you really commit yourself to in terms of focus and, and vision and, and attention and emotion, like, whatever you get emotionally invested in, that's your thing. And everything else, like, you, you can only really have one. It's interesting how money has, it can be helpful in this, in this, um, thing because money can make everything a little bit more cohesive because you can focus on money and be like focusing on your net worth and focusing on feeling good about your personal finances and that can help you then you can be at work and you can care about work because that's where you make the money so you can always like say yes to another shift focus on doing a good job focus on getting the promotion and making more money but then you can go home and you can 
watch TV and feel good about it because you're not spending a bunch of money. You can do stuff in your personal life that is like frugal and you can, all of it can feel really cohesive and you can feel good about all of it and you can feel present for all of it because all of it is, is to the same, for the same ultimate goal of like making more money and bolstering your net worth, you know? You're at home, you're fucking meal prepping and shit, spending no money in restaurants, and you feel all good about all of it. And you d you're not some ghost at home just because you're not at work. Money can be really helpful there, but, but then you get to video games and it's like, man. I don't know. I don't know. I spent $3,000 on this video game, on this um, gaming computer. And then the first game I buy is it's called Elden Ring. It's the first real big game I, I bought. I just tried some demos for different shit. And then I m made it a point to not start gaming right when I got the computer because I wanted to finish some stuff. wanted to get the novel published. Let's talk about that on a different episode. But that got done. And um, I buy this game because it's like the most popular game ever. It sold 20 million copies in the first two weeks. Everyone's playing it. Everyone says it's a masterpiece. I look at the videos and I'm like, oh, this does not look at my th look like my thing. I look at some trailers and it's like, oh, it just looks like dark and drab and gray. But I'm like, okay, everyone says it's a masterpiece. So I spend the 60 bucks on this game and I start playing it. And immediately it's like too difficult. And I knew everyone says it's difficult, so I was like, okay, whatever. But I'm playing with a mouse and keyboard, and it's just like not... And I'm Googling it, and it's just it's just not for a mouse and a keyboard. So I'm, I just bite the bullet, and I go to the store, and I spend 60 more dollars on a controller, on an Xbox controller that I plug into my computer, and now I've spent $120 on playing this game, and I just hate this game. I hate it. And it's so hard. And it's so hard and horrible on so many different levels where like none of the buttons are explained. It's difficult on that level. Why? Why not explain the buttons? Why make it so I have to Google? It's like I just profoundly disagree with that design philosophy. Like I, I am, I come from the nineties where you couldn't Google anything. So you played something on your Super Nintendo and if you got stuck, that was it. Let's play another game. You don't know you don't know how to solve this problem and there's no one to ask. It's just you and maybe under one or more person in the room and you're looking at the screen and if you don't know how to do it, it's over. Like you're playing a different game. And then twenty years later you Google it and you find out. I don't know. But this game is like you have to Google everything. Ugh. Which takes me out of it. Annoying. So the buttons are not explained. And then it's also just difficult in this difficult and horrible in this like spooky scary startling way where you're like walking down these dark hallways and something just flies out from nowhere and just kills you right away and you have no time to react and you're so weak you're just this puny little worm in the beginning of the game that you couldn't even do anything even if you reacted quick enough you're just dead already but then it's just also difficult and horrible in this like existentialist philosophical way where like you're exploring this world and there's like these 
like there's like a castle, for example. You walk into this castle and and everything is like gray and brown, but super detailed and super defined and and super like intricate. And the sky is like a weird brown malevolent color. And you're walking around and you're ugly and you're in this ugly world. And then there are these enemies and the enemies don't even see you because they're just like, their hands are just in their, their faces are just in their hands and they're just staring at the ground and they're just like shaking in fear or terror or like they're just consumed by some nightmare of their own and they don't even see you. So you walk up to them and you start hitting them and you hit them like a bunch of times before they even snap out of their nightmare and start trying to hit back. So you're just walking around for hours in this world where everyone is like, everyone is weird and everyone is a ghost or everyone is like, all the enemies are just scared or panicking. And you spend hours in this world, in this dark, horrible world where there's no safe place and everyone is suffering. And it feels horrible coming out of that. Like the stickiness of worlds and what you care about when you play this game for five hours and then you try to care about what's in that world and you try to get better at it and you try to like get through this horrible nightmare castle. Like even when you stop playing that game and you you walk into your kitchen and you open the fridge, dude, you feel horrible, horrible because there's such a stickiness to the nightmare that you are in. It's like, no one told me this is a horror game. I hate horror stuff. I hate horror movies. I hate horror games. I, uh, if I could go back in time and not play this game, I would not play this game. This game is ruining my life. This game is ruining my life. I like Nintendo games where it's like you're Mario and you're running on a beach and there's like a sunset and the sky is this impossibly blue, beautiful color and there's palm trees and the music is all like marimba and it's just like, Dada. it's just a nice and positive and, and it's just like this. I don't know. You know, I guess this is, Ivan and me have this conversation sometimes where I'm like, I try to recommend a game to him and he's like, I don't play violent video games. And I'm like, Ivan, stop acting like a bitch. Just play this game. It's incredible. And he's like, nah, I just play Nintendo games. I don't like violent video games. And he wouldn't even play Assassin's Creed. And I was like, Ivan, you're being a wuss. But this is really like Ivan 1, Joachim 0. That's what this is. Ivan wouldn't, Ivan's not playing Elden Ring. I haven't even asked him, but I know. Ivan is not playing Elden Ring. It's like the last game in the universe for him. He would never play that game. Ah, so the thing is now I've played it 35 hours and I did turn a little bit of a corner where I got good enough that I, my character is just strong enough and I know what I'm doing enough that I can actually explore the world and not die immediately when something startling happens. And, and, um, I'm experiencing this pleasant feeling of exploration, excuse me, exploration and discovery where you have this big open world in front of you and you can just see things that look weird in the distance and you travel towards them and they sort of open up and, and you look at them and you don't understand. So you go closer and, and it's just like this fascinating thing of like, what, this is a flower? Like, what is this? You know, 
just like weird, enormous monsters. And, and you, I don't feel almost, I don't feel all afraid. So I'm, I'm experiencing this thing of this pleasant feeling of exploration, but the world is still just profoundly not my world because it's goth. The game developers, I read about the game developers. They are obsessed with like European, they're Japanese. It's like Japanese people who are obsessed with old European architecture and the old European aesthetic of like Gothic and medieval. And um, yeah, it's just all those paintings from that era, all the architecture from that era. The game is all that stuff. And it's like, that is not my stuff. I hate that stuff. Oh, and the, the the feeling stays in my chest. The feeling of just terror and horror and nightmare of walking around in this world where everything is all bad. Like even the people you talk to that aren't enemies, they're all weird. And they're all... Half of them are like dead, but they don't know that they're dead and they're ghosts. And they ask for something and they ask to be spared and to live, but they're already dead. And they're all just weird ghostly characters. And it's just so scary and terrible. Oh. And so I'm playing this game and I'm trying to play it and be cool about it and care about that world and then also care about reality because when you stop playing it you step back into reality and then you try to and then reality has this colorless quality to it but i'm trying to just have two programs running in my mind at the same time where on the one hand i play this game a little bit and it's fun and it's escapism and i care about what's in that world but it also i try to care about reality and it's just two opposing or just separate, at least, separate programs. And it's like this weird feeling of, it does not come natural to the human mind. And it's this weird feeling of like, like how you see a cell under a microscope when the cell splits, just like a cell dividing itself into two cells. It's like, that's what it feels like. You just, I just, I'm trying not to just be consumed by the video game. I'm trying to also care about reality and I'm trying to split this cell here into two separate cells that can be running at the same time. Yeah. It's interesting how, <clears throat> you know, I talk about like VR and stuff and I talk about how I want to try VR because it seems so interesting and futuristic and truly immersive and it's all right on the cusp of getting good. It's still not really good and there's not a lot of content and it's still early, but I want to be an early adopter and I want to go in there and I want to, I want to, I'm going to get a VR headset any day now, but, but it's interesting to me how immersiveness and how much something takes over your mind is really not contingent on that. It's not contingent on how much of your visual field is covered. Like I just watched that movie, um, Ready Player One, where it's like, it's a movie where in the reality of the movie, people live in this like ruined, people live in these like shacks and stuff because the earth has been ruined, destroyed, the environment is destroyed. So people flee into this virtual world 
and, and w people wear these VR headsets and live in this VR world. And so the movie is set in both of these worlds. And it kind of works to tell a narrative like that. They figure out kind of a way to tell the narrative. Um, but in that world, in the movie, it's like rich people are also in the VR world. And they have really fancy VR headsets and they have these haptic feedback suits. So it's like an entire, it looks like a wetsuit. It's like an entire suit that you put on. And so if someone in the, if a girl in the VR world like touches your dick, then the VR, the, the, the suit will like move around your dick. So it feels like something's actually touching your dick. You know what I'm saying? Like, like they have conceptualized one of the most complicated you can imagine sort of like immersiveness levels. Like it's a very immersive level of visual and sound and shock and everything. All of your senses plug into the VR world, but it's interesting how it's not dependent on that. And some of the most immersive experiences that you can, you can play a game and feel completely immersed and completely only care about that virtual world. You don't like even people who are playing on like old ass shitty computers on like small screens with shit sound in a smoky fucking room where everything sucks. Like internet cafes, like gaming cafes or whatever they're called in the third world are a big thing. And it's interesting how it's not about the the immersiveness of how much they cover your senses. It's more about something ephemeral of addiction and and how it's um, you know like phone phone games can be can be you know I've talked about that too much already how phone games can be very addictive but it's fascinating to me how we have this we don't have a way of describing that the immersiveness ugh oh god I wish I would have just bought a different video game something just nice I wish I would have just bought like a car game where the sun where there's like some chill rock music playing and and you're just driving real fast through like a desert and now you're in a jungle and now you're on a snowy mountaintop and you're just driving and it like looks real good and and it's just like fun and positive I really need like a positive space. I don't understand people who are into gothic stuff. It's related to my aesthetic theory of how, what, why do people like different kinds of music? Like it's such a basic question, but I don't know what the answer is. And no one even pretend, like people don't even, why do people like different kinds of music? They just do. But it's like, I think there, there's something there where like, there's something on our inside where we're not all the same on the inside. And there's something about different kinds of music that they speak to different kinds of insides. The, the experiential lived experience all the way inside of our minds, 
like even like almost in our subconscious of like we have a different sort of look and feel all the way down in our subconscious. And if you listen to all the exact same type of music as a person, then you too probably have some, there's some strange quality to your deep down philosophical inside that's like similar. And then someone who listens to death metal and likes gothic, likes to dress up in gothic cosplay, those people and me, we do not have the same innards. <clears throat> was i talking about yeah goth and music there's something that something the same there anyway let's do a water so today we're doing three different flavors of sparkling water from a brand called wild wonder one word all lowercase because it's 2022 everything is one word all lowercase antioxidant sparkling drink so let's start with this one i just fucking grabbed one Pear turmeric. Turmeric tastes kind of like bad, and pear tastes kind of like good, and they can both be. They can both be used for good and evil. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, if I told you, hey, try to imagine what someone something would taste like if it's if you mix pear and turmeric, you wouldn't know where to begin. Because these things have never been in a room together. Oh my god. You're sm I'm smelling a li liquid and it smells powdery. It smells like a powder. How weird is that? It smells, it smells like a, some sort of powder from a spice rack. But it's a liquid. Oh. Wow. Okay, yeah. That's the answer. That's what something that is flavored with both pear and turmeric would taste like. Because it's definitely a pear juice. It's got a lot of pear juice in there. Ingredients. Fresh brewed herbs. What the fuck is a brewed herb? Filtered water, turmeric root, ginger root. Pear juice, agave nectar, lemon juice, pear flavor, monk fruit extract, black pepper. Oh, black pepper. That's the, that's the powderiness. Yeah, it's a little bit peppery. But peppery fruit is a cool crossover episode. Supports gut and immune health. Yep, sure, fine, whatever. No, that's very good. That's very good. It's borderline not watery enough for what we do here. But okay, so there's also some, some crazy copywriting on the side here. Okay, so this is from South San Francisco. Growing up, my Chinese grandma brewed tonics with a symphony of wild herbs and botanicals. They worked wonders, soothing my stomach and lifting my spirits. Wild wonder, all one word, all lowercase, even though it's the beginning of a new sentence. Wild wonder, all lowercase, reimagines the healing drinks of my heritage, where herbal wisdom and gut healing superfoods meet big fruit flavors. Oh my god, what a like, shameless attempt to cash in on not being super white this person sounds like someone who has three white grandparents and one asian grandparent oh this is so like craven and i don't know why am i like that why am i so negative 
I shouldn't be negative like that. This is probably... <laughs> the person's name is Rosa Lee, so you know this person is fully Chinese or whatever. Because better gut health should be as easy as popping open a can and as delicious as a California produce stand. Everything about this makes my soul hurt. <laughs> Maybe it's jealousy. I think what I'm experiencing right now is jealousy. Because this person has a dream and they like made their dream reality and turned it into something cool. Because this is a beautifully designed can and it's a delicious beverage. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not willing to say that things like this are healthy because juice is not healthy. It's just not. But whatever. Everything can, every can lifts you Every can lifts you to create everyday wonders. You've done one already. 5% of profits from this drink goes towards empowering marginalized communities. Cheers, exclamation mark, Rosa Lee, founder. Antioxidants, real fruit, immune boosting superpowers. Create everyday wonders. What if I was this positive person that could look at this and read this and not cringe and not feel like it's... Like my soul is a blackboard and this can is just a bunch of nails just scratching against this blackboard. Like what if I could just read a positive, happy person being positive and happy about something? And what if I could just be along for the ride and just like it and just be like, yeah, thumbs up, girl. You go, girl. Like you're cool. I want to be cool with you. You want to you wanna create wonders together? <laughs> Now it sounds like I'm trying to fuck. Oh, God. I don't even know how to fucking pretend to be a person like that. But I want to be a person like that because those people are happier and they're better at everything and they're more successful. To just be shitting on everything is such a fucking bad modality. It reminds me of at work. I'm going to say something now. It's like... At work... Caitlin, love her, love her to death. Caitlin has this thing where she is a hippie in the sense that she cannot be okay with anything like this. So whenever at work, there's a message from corporate, message from management, and the message is something about like, let's have a rockin', let's have a rockin' week, let's rock this month. Let's be really, let's be really awesome this month. Whenever it's anything like that, she's just like, gag, gag, gag. I hate this. I hate how fake that is. And it's like, being super bothered by stuff like that is a good way to sabotage yourself. It's what I'm, because I relate to it. I have access to those feelings of gagging and being disgusted with, Someone who clearly, like corporate trying to send a message of like, let's love our workplace. It's clearly just corporate wants to make money. And you say that to make everyone make more money for you. And it's like, it's fake to pretend otherwise. But I can see both sides of it. Because I love my work and, and I have access to the heart of a cynic. But... 
when I see her do it, I see it from the outside. I see myself from the outside. And when I see myself from the outside doing that, I realize that, wow, that's not helpful. Wow, that is, that immediately disqualifies her for so many things. That immediately disqualifies her. And I disqualified myself like that for a long time, and, and I now I try not to, and and um, it's tough. It's tough. It's funny. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny to think that I could. It's funny to imagine that I would go up to her and be like, "So, Caitlin, you know, when corporate um, tells us that we need to love our work, then uh, when you say something negative about that, that is an attitude of not loving our work. So we got to work on our attitude, okay? Like, the, like the idea that you could tell someone to do that differently is hilarious because that's the thing you can't do. As I was hanging out with Kimber. I was hanging out with Kimber a few days ago. So funny. Kimber was telling me about she was trying to work at this one place in Auburn. And it's like, this place is like kind of corporate and stuff. And and they said a bunch of mean shit to her. And it was it was all bad. And she doesn't, she did no showed one day because they were sh shitty. But they said this one thing that I thought was so funny. Where <laughs> the way she told the story was like this. She's with her trainer. So Kimber's like me, you know, she's my age, you know, late 30s. And the trainer, I imagine the trainer to be like a 21-year-old who's like really spunky. <laughs> and so they're standing back of house, not in view of any guest. And Kimber like tightened her bun on the top of her head, like tightened her hair, just puffed up her hair. And then the trainer is like, Kimber's like, it was like being at Disneyland, being like a part of the cast at Disneyland. What is that called when you work for the mouse, when you wear a fucking, I don't know, whatever. The trainer was like, what do we do when we touch our hair? We wash our hands. And she was all like glib and giddy and weird and like overly excited about rules and following the rules and telling someone what to do. And Kimber was just like, okay. <laughs> oh, God. All right. I will now wash my hair. Hands, I guess, yeah. Which is true, like you should wash your hands after touching your hair, but yeah. What do we do after we wash our hands? <laughs> so funny. Ugh. It's tough, man. Because on the one hand, I really know what Caitlin is saying, and and I do that's this is the thing. I do believe that there is a way to run a company and have a voice, be in corporate, and having corporate have a voice that spe that respects people and doesn't... Because if you're overly glib and overly positive and fake and clearly you're just like, want everyone to be happy all the time so we can make more money for corporate. Like, that isn't the best way of running a company. I don't think that's true. I think that there's a way to respect people and to, to be like... To speak people to speak to people like adults, and um, and even be a little bit cynical, maybe, and even be a little bit self-deprecating, 
Corporate can be all of those things. And I believe that, like, it's funny to imagine, like, you know, what if I had a huge corporation and I was like the boss and I set the tone and I got to write like a newsletter to everyone? It's like, could I come up with a voice for that newsletter that was like, I could. I That's the only thing I could do. I couldn't run a company. I couldn't be, be the boss of a big company. I couldn't start a corporation. I couldn't do any of the money stuff. But I could write the newsletter. But no one's ever going to give me that job. Wow. This one time, when I worked at the Swedish Chamber of Commerce, I did that. We had this mailing list. We had a main mailing list for all, like, business people business swedes in china that they sign up for to learn about events and to learn about like virtual events and learning about regulation and learning about how to be an expat in china and learning about fucking banking how to set up a bank account how to do business in china like this blah 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 all this bullshit but then there was a secondary mailing mailing list for young people and it's the young professionals was that is what that brand was called. And young professionals would also organize these events and they would frequently just be like social things where young people, young Swedes in China go and party and you buy a ticket and Swedes can just mingle and network and hang out. And then it has this mailing list where you mail out to the thousand people that have signed up to this list. And so I would write these newsletters for it. And it was very much inspired by... I'm just going to be honest and say that it was inspired by how Smart Beijing and Smart Shanghai had this guy. His name is Morgan Short. He's the ex-husband of Lil Punk, who was my girlfriend for a while. So we were kind of nemesis because we were both vying for this girl. And we both like both could get her and both got her and both didn't get her. And she kind of like had both of us. And it was this like vague triangle where him and me spent 15 years of our lives in this weird triangle, but we probably only spent 60 seconds cumulatively talking to each other. Like we never talked to each other, but we know everything about each other because there's just this thing where indirectly through her and having a thousand, like on Facebook, I think we are friends, but we also have like 70 mutual friends, you know, just like a person like that, that I've never talked to, but we have so much stuff but so he's older than me and he's canadian and he's just better than me and and he wrote this newsletter for smart shanghai and it was so fucking good and then they sent him up to beijing to start smart beijing which was like this cool expat magazine and ex smart beijing never panned out and it was there for five years and then they just shuttered it because in beijing people aren't savvy enough and expats aren't irreverent enough because expats in beijing want to actually go local and learn chinese and they don't they don't want to be part of like a tumorous cancerous irreverent cynical expat community but he would write these newsletters for Smart Shanghai back in the day, 2008. And they were so good and they were so funny and he would make fun. He would, it was a, it was a newsletter, uh, it was a rundown of what the events of the week are. And it's like, <laughs> and he would be like, all right, Friday night, if you're a piece of shit like this, you can go to this event. And if you're a piece of shit like that and you're this, you can go to this other event. And he would have these hilarious descriptions of different types of piece of shit people. And he would just make fun of everything. And it was just this, this incredibly creative, well-written, savvy thing. And it's actually a voice that's pretty easy to replicate because then I was in Beijing and I'm at the Swedish Chamber of Commerce and it's so funny because we would have these events and I would I would just write 
super freeform what I wanted to write. And I would, we would like, <laughs> like if we were having an event, like at some place where there's a little bit of a direction because in Beijing everything is an alley and Beijing is a city of alleys like everything is down an alley and you can walk through alleys you can spend like 30 minutes some alleys are like like it would take like an hour to drive around the block that's how big the block is so the alleys snaking through the block it can take you 45 minutes to walk through the alley so to find an, a location, a bar in the middle of a block like that is almost impossible. So the directions would be ridiculously complicated. So I And I would write them and make them more complicated and make them really funny. I thought they were funny. Now I'm just, now this is just bragging. But it just one of the most, one of the things I enjoyed most in my entire life ever was to write those letters. And I only wrote them for like six months. And then I would have people come up to me like one of the most just satisfying just like tonic for the soul thing that ever happened to me was to have people and it happened a couple of times to have people come up like a year after i even wrote them to have someone from like ecuador come up to me and be like so i accidentally signed up for some swedish young professional list of events for parties because i wanted to know if there was a party somewhere and i was getting these emails and I'm realizing that that was you that wrote those emails. And they would be like, I thought those emails were hilarious. And to have someone tell me that they thought those emails were hilarious is honestly like, oh, I mean, I recognize that this is just a podcast now where I'm just like sitting here alone in a house and I'm just talking to myself about something I did that I thought I did good. But it's like, I just, God, that was like one of the best things that ever happened to me. Having random Polish people be like, to hear my name and be like, oh, I recognize that name. You wrote that, you wrote those, you wrote those weird ass emails. But really, I raised my sparkling water from Morgan Short because I was really just copying his voice. But it was a very copyable voice and probably he copied it from someone else. And hey, I was doing it not in my first language, so there's that. Let's drink another sparkling water for Morgan Short. I dedicate this next can of Wild Wonder, one word, all lowercase, to Morgan Short. Lemon ginger. Now, lemon ginger, we've been fucking with lemon ginger on this pod for a while. Yep. <laughs> <coughs> Oh my God, That there's no way to drink that and not cough when you take the first sip, first of all. Yeah, ginger doesn't work. I'm yet, why is it that ginger beer can be so snappy, snappy and zesty and, and fresh and gingery and real ginger tasting, but no, no ginger flavored sparkling water has ever gotten close to that. And this is just fake ass ginger powder. Ginger juice is in here, but it it does somehow in these sparkling waters the freshness of ginger is never maintained. Why is Cock and Bull brand ginger beer so fucking snappy and spicy and delicious, but none of these canned waters can do it? That's a six out of ten. Fuck that one. Oh, does it have the exact same text on the side? Growing up, my Chinese grandma brewed tonics with a symphony of wild herbs and botanicals. Cheers, Rosalie, founder. 
Rosalie, I truly believe that if I'd started off life differently and just been positive from the beginning, instead of just teaching myself how to be negative and then to be better and better and better at being negative and to... In my mind, the grooves, the mental habit of being negative, the groove around those thoughts, around negative thoughts, those grooves are so deep and so well-trotted and I've been negative so much that I'm always negative, that I cannot not be negative. If I had just started off with being positive, I could have married Rosalie, comma, founder. Wild wonder. All one word, all lowercase. Dude, I could have been married, all lowercase. I could have married a positive person, but instead I set myself up on a path of negativity and, and all I can hope for now is to at least get to neutrality, to give up on negativity enough that I get to neutrality. But, you know, maybe miracles happen and maybe one day I'll be a positive person. Oh... I don't know. It's also like there's a way to be a corporate voice and speak to your employees and be sardonic and cynical and negative and make fun of it all and and have people feel like that's cool. But you're really then only speaking to other negative fucking people. Like, do you really want a company where everyone is everyone that works there is Caitlin? I don't know. Caitlin and me. Do you really just want Caitlin and me at your company over and over and over? And then you write these like sardonic, cynical newsletters from corporate and me and Caitlin are like, yeah, that's great because that's pretty funny because that's making fun of the boss. I don't know. Is that what you want? I don't know. Anyway, I'm running out of time here. I got to be at work in 30 minutes. I'm honestly a little bit stressed out because I'm not completely sure that it's when I start working. I actually have to check that right now. Good news, everyone. I don't have to be at work in one minute. I have 30 more minutes, so we're good. Um, I just got a, I just got a text from my aunt, which is appropriate because... That's something I think I can should talk about. How last Monday I recorded a pod with D- Doug, and, and then I went to work that night. And then um, the next morning I drove down to um, the bay to um, San Fran. And every time I say San Fran, my uncle, who has lived in San Fran for thirty five years, always tells me, "No one says San Fran. Don't say San Fran." <laughs> So I was in San Fran, <laughs> and um, I've mentioned this before, how, like, every time I go and see him, there's this Fox News on in the background, and he's very political, and everything is about politics, and we just argue about politics. But So it's him, and his, his sort of, like, um, best friend slash ex-wife, who lives in an apartment next door to him and and then her son and the son's girlfriend so i go down to the bay and i hang out with those four people my uncle margarita margarita's son david 
and David's girlfriend, Julie. And we hang out and I am, we go to dinner. The first thing that happens is we go to dinner. And it's like, first of all, my, I have a lot of my dad's social anxiety. And what my dad always told me growing up is like the worst, his worst nightmare is a dinner, a sit down dinner, not a mingling dinner, a buffet where you walk around, a sit down dinner. Cause there's no, that would give him a panic attack more than anything else because there's no way to leave. There's no socially acceptable reason for, for just feeling cornered while sitting in a chair at a dinner table surrounded by friends. There's no socially acceptable reason to, to just say, I need to go and to just leave. You're trapped. You're there. And the social truth of how you're there made him panic attack, make, give him panic attack every single time, which is why he has, he has probably not been to a dinner like that for probably, yeah, a long time. But, but he, you know, in his thirties and forties, when he would go to dinners like that, that he probably don't, he probably does not go to dinners like that anymore. But, but he would always take a bunch of Xanax. Would always take a bunch of Xanax, and then he really got it in his head that he couldn't do a sit-down dinner without a bunch of Xanax. So he definitely has not been to a sit-down dinner without Xanax for probably forty years. And I have a lot of that. And so we go to this restaurant, and it's a booth, and I'm sitting in the part of the booth where you can't even leave. You're like physically blocked in, also. And also I'm sitting on, we're, there's five of us. It's me and the four of them. And there's three on the other side and me and my uncle on my side. And just the fact that we are set up like that, that there's three people in front of me, makes it more, that there's more focus on me. And I'm like less anonymous and I just feel so cornered. So it's just such a tough situation to begin with because I'm so there. I ain't going nowhere. And... I don't drink anymore and I didn't order a drink and I've told them that I'm sober and you know, I ain't drinking, but man, would life be easier at those dinners if I was drinking? It would. And life is not easy at dinners like that. And then as the dinner progresses, I, me and David are like, <clears throat> we met before and we talked about it and, and we realized that we met in 1995 when I was nine years old. That's the last time we met. And now I'm 35. So, and he's probably 45. Um, so we're, so we're like, it's cool though. Cause it's like, he, he's young like me in the sense that like, we're cool. You know, we're two dudes and we're kind of making fun of them a little bit because this is my uncle and his mom and they're old and they're a little bit old and we can kind of make fun of them a little bit. And me and David like really liked each other. But it's becoming clear throughout this dinner that, like, all four of these people are very, very right-wing and that they care about politics quite a bit and that there's a cultural divide. And we talk about different things. And, like, they make fun of electric cars. They make fun of all the shit. And they always make fun of electric cars. And I just try to be like, look, bro, yes. You have an electric car and maybe the electricity for that car comes from a coal power plant and that's not perfect. And yeah, it's a flawed system. It's not done. But it's like to just shit on it 
because it's easy and fun to shit on things, isn't that great? Like, that's not that impressive of an observation to just shit on things. And also, if we're trying to fix a problem here of sustainability and not ruining the planet, like, we're going to start with a salute. Like, having a, a way of moving around that's better, that's sustainable, that's maybe powered by solar and nuclear, safe nuclear, all these different things, fucking fucking geothermal, whatever it is, hydrogen, all these different things, setting up, figuring out a whole system for how to move around in a sustainable way. There's so many problems to setting up that whole system that if Tesla can solve some of those problems but some of the problems still remain, then like that's some way that we've gone. And just because Tesla didn't solve all 12 problems in one fell swoop and didn't like revolutionize where electricity comes from and how it is stored and how it is in an engine and how much a car costs and all the different problems, like just because Tesla didn't immediately magically solve all the problems doesn't mean that everything is a huge fucking failure. So like stop making fun of these things. Cause like, and then I say things like, you know, like the problem exists, you know, like we are ruining the planet and like the environment, there's a problem that we're ruining the environment in all these different ways. And maybe some of those ways are exaggerated and maybe some of them are not, you know, who knows? Maybe there is a conspiracy, maybe there's not, but like we are ruining the environment. And then for, for and then my aunt just says, yeah, well, I don't think we're ruining the environment. And it's like, oh. That is so hard to argue with. Like someone who truly thinks that we are not ruining the environment is like very difficult to talk to. <laughs> it's like a very – because people can be like, oh, I think it's a scam that the ocean levels are going to rise. I think it's a scam that like we don't use plastic bags because there's all this industry that creates all this other stuff. Like there are lots of valid points you can make about how people turn environmentalism into a, how fake things, things are fake. Fine. You know, but the, but the fundamental problem is true that like there's fucking plastic in the ocean now and like air pollution is real, but to just be like, there is no problem. That's a tough person to argue with. I tell you. And then, <clears throat> I um, I was trying to talk about my stuff because I'm like, I haven't seen him, my uncle, for like five months. So I'm trying to talk about, I'm trying to get some guidance and stuff because he's my uncle, you know, I respect his opinion. So I'm talking about work a little bit and I'm like, so I do this thing and I make this amount of money and I'm an hourly worker and I make pretty good money and I spend these many hours and they're offering me this other thing of like becoming salaried and and working more, maybe getting the same amount of money, but maybe having a good career going forward like just trying to describe these options and i'm like asking for his opinion and stuff but he wasn't even listening but david's girlfriend was listening and so dave so i said something to the effect of you know they're offering me this salaried position but i want to maintain some modicum of work-life balance and she she's like work-life balance she's like a 45 year old woman in finance she's like work-life balance Work-life balance. And then she looks at me and she goes, wow, you sound like such a millennial. It's like, oh. dude, that cut, dude. That cut so deep. She's like, you sound like a millennial. That cut really fucking deep, dude. 
That fucked me up. Like, when she said that was the moment I realized that they're all against me. That they're all, like, there's a culture war. There's two sides. And that's the moment I realized, oh, all four of you are on the other side. And there's something about just right-wing women in America that just fucks me up more. Because I get how you can be a white dude and be right wing. Cause it's very self-serving and it's fine. And it's like, it's just logical to me. Cause it's like all of those things are being an American right wing dude is to protect all these institutions and constructs and systems that protect you and elevate you and give you things. So of course you want to protect them. And being not that is like a difficult self-sabotaging way of uh, um, act of generosity like it just oh shit it just is so like i understand that not everyone wants to like give up some of their own stuff and then i have this other attitude right of how i actually think it's better for everyone if we ultimately manage to implement a complete overhaul of stuff and become truly progressive and enlightened and it's like a freer world for everyone but in the short term you're giving stuff up i'm perfectly happy admitting that in the short term you're giving stuff up and then the long-term goal is like just as just having like gender freedom just having like this freedom that whatever you are you're allowed to do everything you won't be made people won't make fun of you for doing stuff just because you're that doesn't mesh with some shitty fucking identity thing that people are putting on you but but I get that dudes want to be it, but there's something about women, which always reminds me of this, of that thing, uh, the stand-up special by uh, Live in Austin. What's his name again? I can't remember, but I talked about it in a different episode where like, he has this joke where he's like, his dad is a Fox News dad, and that's fine. Fox News dad is a good dad. He, like, doesn't know anything and stuff, and he's stupid, but he's, like, a good dad. But having a Fox News mom, that's a shitty mom. Like, she smokes in the house. And I think that's such a fun, deep, philosophical joke because there's so much there. And there's something about these, like, Fox News women that fucks me up because it's just, like, you're self-sabotaging in the short and long term. Just to make, like, it's, I almost see it as, like, you're doing it because there's, like, men, you have daddy issues or something. Like, there's a man in your life. Like, it's, it's definitely oftentimes informed by how there's some male figure in your life who showed you that this is what they think and you want to impress them so you adopt that that thing and you have some weird daddy issue that you never got over of how you want to impress your dad. So you like become this like men's rights ad activist woman. Oh, that's so fucking dark, dude. When women say shit like that, like when women say truly deeply extreme right wing shit, it's like, Oh, that fucks me up, dude. That is so hard to work with. Like, I do not know how we're going to arrange the society where there's space for people like that. Because that is just like straight poison. Like, how do we have... How do we set up a society where everyone is like free to do exactly what they want? If some people just want to do poison. Oh, that's a toughie, dude. That fucks me up.
And it's also like, so, that, so I'm talking to this woman, she's 45 and she's in finance and, and, and I'm like, I don't want to get on salary because then they can ask me for infinite numbers of hours and I make this set amount of money and I already make that amount of money working way less than that. I don't want to do that because of some flimsy promise of having a better career five or 10 years from now, which might never even materialize. Like, I don't want to suffer for that. And she's like, you sound like a fucking millennial. You're a lazy piece of shit and you sound like a millennial. And the thing about it is that what she's really saying is, I suffered. So it is not fair that other people that come after me will not suffer. I suffered so everyone should suffer. I suffer so it would not be fair for you not to. It's like, that's the truth of it. If I say, I just want to have some little bit of work-life balance, and she says, wow, you sound like a millennial, that means she never had any work-life balance, and she suffered. Like, she, she hasn't, like, she has been operating on five hours of sleep for decades. That's what that means. All right, stop, 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 pause, pop, stop. Okay, so this is me speaking the day after I recorded this episode because I forgot to say something and I it, it needs to be in here. Um, the reason I remembered it is because late at night after recording this episode, I'm just home alone, I'm on my computer, I'm on Instagram, and I see this funny meme and the meme is just some guy's face. It's just like this young black kid. His mouth is open. His jaw is like dropped and he's just staring and he's not moving. It's a video, but he's not moving. And the caption is the following, okay? Staring at my mom in disbelief after she told the whole family and guests my deepest secret just for a bit of adult clout at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Okay? So when I see this meme and I read that, I remember this thing that my uncle said while I was having dinner with him and his on-again, off-again ex-wife and her son and the son's girlfriend. And, you know, the reason I have to, the reason I feel this <laughs> need to insert this here is that this episode turned into way too much of me describing good things I did that was received, things that were received positively too much backdoor bragging and and I need to just actually include something that's like truly oh god truly humiliating so so I, I'm at this dinner and I've already mentioned how it's like it's a social trapped situation where you can't leave and dinners are not always just chill and here's an example of that so we're in it. We're at the dinner and we're talking, and we're a little bit in a state of reminiscing because I haven't met David since 1995, when I was nine or ten years old. So because of that, we're sort of talking about when we were younger, when we were kids, different things. And so my uncle mentions how in 2003 or two or something, I go to America and visit him one summer. And he's a teacher at the Academy of Art in downtown San Francisco. And I take a summer course. 
Now I don't pay and I'm not technically enrolled, but he's the teacher. So he just brings me along and just gives me a computer. And I sort of, I think you could call it auditing that I audit the class, but I take the class. And so he has this thing. I'm just going to say this. So what my uncle says is the following. He's like, I'm 17 or 16 years old at this point in 2003. Does that make sense? Yeah. My uncle is like, yeah, when, when Joe came visited me as a teenager, he was obsessed with Asian girls. And it was a photo class and we had them all take pictures. And he like, and then my uncle is like showing how he's like, yeah, he held the camera like this. And he like secretly took pictures of these Asian girls in the class. And then he had a, he put them on the computer and he named the folder stalker one and stalker two. And he put these pictures of Asian girls in the folders that he named stalker one and stalker two. Oh man. What do you say to that? It's like, wow. All right. It's like, <laughs> it's like such a, it's such a like domination technique to tell a story like that. It's so funny. It's adult clout. Like I'm 35 years old, but it's like, you tell a story like that about me. And it's like, what am I supposed to say? You know, first of all, I revert to being a teenager when you tell that story. And also there's no response. Also, what I say, what I said was, I don't think that's true, bro. I don't think that's true. I don't think this story is true. And honestly, I don't think this story is true because as I've mentioned, especially how I, I went into detail about this last episode with Doug, I'm a massive hoarder, especially a digital hoarder. Like I have terabyte after terabyte of every file I've ever had, every like photo I've ever taken, every like thing I've ever written, every photo I've ever had in Photoshop and done something with, everything I've ever designed, anything I've ever put together, any graphic design thing, any idea, anything. I have it all saved. So I have the photos from 2003. And I, in anticipation of recording this that I'm saying right now, I went back and looked at them. And the photos are more like, I have all the photos and there are no photos in the classroom. Like he was saying how I was sitting at the desk and I was pretending to just hold the camera sideways, but I was really taking pictures of them in the classroom surreptitiously across the room. I didn't fucking do that. What I did was, which is very similar, is that they all had us just step outside of the building. The class was like in a high rise and right across the street from it was this park. Or like just two blocks down is this park. So we're all told to like go to this park, just take some photos so you have some photos to use for this Photoshop class. It was basically a Photoshop class that my uncle was teaching. So we're just told to go there. So we're all, all the students are in this park. So I took a bunch of photos around in the park with other students in the picture because they were all in there. And then I'm like taking pictures of these Asian girls on purpose, like on purpose being like, okay, I'm just taking a picture of the park, but really I'm zooming in like crazy on these Asian girls just because. And, but the thing was also that I clearly went up and talked to them because I, I knew their names because what I actually named the folder was their names. It was like Lauren and something else, Lauren and Stephanie or some shit. 
And I took a bunch of pictures of them, like, regular, like, up close. Like, they are looking into the camera. They are four feet in front of me. They are posing. So it's like, I don't know. Is that better? I don't know if that's better. But that's what I did. And, dude, the larger point was I obsessed with Asian girls. Dude, I probably was. Because, and this is also something I said to Dan at the dinner. I was like... First of all, I don't think that's true. But secondly, yeah, I mean, maybe I was obsessed with Asian girls, but like, because I did move to China after that, and I stayed in China for 10 years. Now, look, bro, I wasn't in China for 10 years because I was obsessed with Asian girls. But maybe, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I just think the larger point is more, is fascinating because it's like, first of all, first I, I tell my uncle, like, no, I don't think that's true. And then I say, you know, I mean, the larger point is probably true because I did move to China. And then thirdly, I just tried to change the subject. And I was like, oh, did you know that people from that school were actually involved in the redesign of the hotel that I work for now? Which is like an attempt to change the topic, but it's like a, such a transparent attempt. Oh, God, that made me feel so bad. Dude, that dinner was kind of stressful. Oh, God. Between the you're a millennial and him saying that, it's like, I'm just sitting there just cornered. Just culturally cornered and socially cornered. and It's just there's an asymmetry, you know? People that knew you as a child that have embarrassing information about you. I don't have any embarrassing information about my uncle. More than shit that I'm, more than shit like, you know, he doesn't take care of himself and he drinks too much and, you know, we're all, we're all alcoholics and he's not in recovery, you know, like you want me to rub that in your face for some clout back, like, bro, oh God, so bad. Oh, God. That made me feel so bad. So the thing is, I had this dinner. I drive down to the bay because I want to see my fam. I want to see my uncle. I want to check in with everyone. I'm just feeling a little bit bad, and I wanted to, like, see the family and plug back in. And I sh and we meet at this restaurant, and we have this dinner, and I'm the recipient. Like, I'm the re I, I, I get so stressed out by many things that are said. We argue about politics. I'm called a millennial. I'm told that I was obsessed with Asian girls. When I was 17, I have to, like, navigate this shit, and there's no way to win, and I'm sober, and everyone else is drinking, and I, and then I go get a hotel room, and my uncle was like, I'll get you a hotel room, and so we're like, okay, let's meet at the hotel, and then he got lost and couldn't find the hotel, so I get there first, so I pay for the hotel room. That he was going to pay for. Which is fine. But it's just like. Ugh. It's the sort of thing that makes me feel. Just like. Ugh, a little bit worse. Being out 150 bucks. That I wasn't planning on being out. And then I, I'm in this hotel room alone. In San Francisco. And there's this highway. Outs, right outside of my door. And it's all loud. And I'm laying there in the middle of the night. 
And I'm like, I can't sleep. So I just fucking went to Safeway at midnight to get some NyQuil because I wanted to sleep. And I have a little bit of NyQuil and I still couldn't sleep. And I was watching this Sebastian Maniscalco stand-up special. And I was just going to watch a little bit of it. And I watched a whole hour and a half or whatever. And he's all like Italian-American and crazy. But like, it's a, all the stories about how he's like a super pretentious Italian-American kid grew up like that in an Italian family. How like, (laughs) some of the jokes are so funny because like, he's like at lunch, everyone else had yo-hos and shit, but he had like a veal piccata. So he was the only kid who had to keep his lunch in the fridge in the, in the teacher's lounge. So his veal piccata wouldn't go bad. So I watch that and then I finally fall asleep super late or no, maybe I fall asleep at like 2.30, but I wake up three hours later from a nightmare where I'm in a deli trying to buy meat and cheese from an Italian man and he doesn't speak English and I'm freaking out because we can't communicate and somehow that's a massive nightmare that I can't, it's like all the stress from the dinner is coming out in this nightmare about Italian Americans because I watch it stand up special and it's like, I'm trying to get this block of cheese and this block of meat and he's picking the wrong block of meat and cheese and it's all expensive and I'm being ripped off and I can't, I'm like losing money and I'm being humiliated and I'm getting the wrong meat and the wrong cheese and everything is like wrong and I wake up from this nightmare at 5 a.m. and I can't go back to sleep and I didn't I was so anxious about that from that dinner that I only slept like two and a half hours and then the next day I hang out with them all day and I had like fucking six coffees from Starbucks because I only slept three hours and I was dying I just had all these like sweet cream cold brews just over and over. It was just like, I got to go to Starbucks again. And I went more, more and more coffee and I just felt so tired and horrible. And it's like checking in with family is not always chill, but it's also like this profoundly American experience, right? To hang out with people on a, to live in a, in a world, in a hermetically sealed cultural bubble siloed with only people that agree with you and then you go see your family and you just so happens your blood related to people that don't agree with you politically so you have to argue with them i mean isn't that supposed to be one of the most you know iconic american experiences god I thought about it so much because I thought about the thing with being a millennial and I thought about how the best response to the millennial thing would have been to be like, hey, so what I'm hearing you say is that you wanted, you suffered so you want everyone else that comes after you to suffer. Like that's what I'm hearing and that's like not that mature of a thing to say. But I thought about what do I say? What could I have said when my uncle says he was obsessed with Asian girls? And I thought about it and I was like, and I almost thought about how the cool, the best response is to just remain an adult and invite everyone into the conversation and be like, hey, David, this thing that my uncle just said, do you believe this to be true? This thing where I was like a creepy stalker at 17, like, do you believe that? Does that sound like a believable story to you? And just like not change the sub- subject and like stay on topic and stay in the pain and bring everyone in and have everyone input on the painful thing and just be like, just be there for it. Because it doesn't matter. Oh, God. Oh, that was such a bad dinner, I tell you. Uh, 
Oh, God. Yeah, I don't know, dude. <clears throat> I don't know. I think that was everything I had to say about it. So now we're going to go back to the fucking regular episode, I guess. And It's interesting because it's like, I have this thing I say where, like, I've, I say that I've trained my mind to only think negative about stuff, but somehow I didn't think of this story yesterday. I think it's very interesting that I didn't think of this story while recording the episode because it was such a big part of the dinner, but it was so painful that I just couldn't think of it. So, like, I'm trained to think about small negative things, but the big negative things are too painful and I don't, I don't approach them. It's like, ugh, so stupid. Anyway, whatever. Now I'm cutting back. I'm editing this in. And this is the end of the inserted part that I'm recording the next day. And now we're going back to the regular episode. And who even knows if this is going to make any sense in a linear <laughs> in a linear way. All right. Three, two, one, cut. Uh, let's do the last water here. I got to go to work in a minute. Guava rose. You know how I feel about guava water. Guava always makes me think of that. That in in Shanghai in 2007, there was like one child in our friend group. He was like five years old or something. We were just partying and like drinking, and I was 20 or 19, and my friends were 30 or 40, and there was one child in the group. So this child would come to these dinners and just be a child while everyone's getting wasted. And this one time, we give the kid a guava juice, and the kid goes. Y'all coming to the wedding? And we're all like, what are you talking about? What wedding? My wedding, because I'm getting married. Because I love this guava juice. And we're getting married. Five years old. Just came up with that on their own. Guava rose. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Just first impression, impression right away. That's a 10 out of 10. Guava juice is so fucking delicious. And here they found something to just sprinkle into the guava juice to make it even better. Like just a little bit of a floral rose. What is it? Rose in what form? Oh yeah. The first ingredient on the ingredient list, fresh brewed rose petals. Parenthesis, filtered water, rose petals. That's it. They made actual, just they brewed rose petals and then guava puree, a little bit of agave nectar, Jerusalem artichoke, rose flavor, chicory root inulin, elderberry juice concentrate bro are you serious with me right now live probiotics okay this is a 10 out of 10 wild wonder all lowercase one word 10 out of 10 that's an incredible drink just go on the website right now and buy that i don't know dude this lady called me a millennial and she hurt my feelings i'll tell you it was funny because I think me and David could be really good friends. And I think him and me could be almost like Corey at work where he's super right wing and I'm not. And we could be friends because we can just, it can be funny, but with I'm, I'm hanging out with the four of them and San Fran and the other three of them. It's not funny. Like they don't know how to make it funny. My uncle's like, you hear about juicy omelet? I'm like, what are you talking about? Juicy omelet. He's like, juicy omelet, you know? Jesse Smollett, 
You hear about Jussie Smollett, and it's like, bro, I don't want to talk about Jussie Smollett. And don't call him Juicy Omelette, bro.